This is Catherine Lambrecht. Welcome to the Culinary Historians meeting. 20 years ago, we had grits and greens. And Sharla, are you there? You I'm here. Admit? Great. Can you talk about what you're planning to do to celebrate that great moment? As Catherine mentioned, during the uh, 2001 Grits and Greens Conference, I realized that soul food needed to be celebrated and encouraged. As a result, I created National Soul Food Month. June 2021 will be the 20th anniversary of National Soul Food Month. And this is a month where we celebrate the heritage and food ways of African-Americans and people of the African diaspora. We share this celebration because so many of the foods that are part of the American cuisine originated via foods that were brought along with um, spices and things from, from Africa when people were enslaved. This is a series of virtual programs in June. And one of our supporting sponsors is the Museum of Food and Drink from New York. You can find more information on the website, www.nationalsoulfoodmonth.com. Thank you. And thank you, Sharla, for keeping the fire going. Uh, Scott, I'm turning it over to you. Great. Uh, again, I'm Scott Warner. I'm president of the Culinary Historians. Uh, Kathy and I are partners in this group. And Kathy mentioned to you about she has her own programs, which we're, we're like Siamese twins. Kathy just mentioned about her own programs coming up next month for the culinary uh, for Chicago Foodways Roundtable next month for Chicago. And tonight we have a, a typical food person to speak for us. I'll tell you why he's typical. Um, and uh, he was introduced to us. Uh, some years back by Sharla Draper, who just spoke to you. And thank you, Sharla, for making this connection. So Adrian Miller, our speaker tonight, is a food writer, James Beard Award winner, attorney, and certified barbecue judge who lives in Denver, Colorado. That's why I say he's a typical food person, because so many food people are Renaissance people. And, uh, and so he's typical. Tonight marks Adrian's third time as a speaker for our group or as Mae West once said, too much of a good thing can be wonderful. Adrian first spoke to us about eight years ago when his first book came out, that was Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, which won the James Beard Foundation Award for Scholarship and Reference. Not bad for, for an attorney's first book on food. And then he came back a few years later to speak to us on his second book, the President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. That book was a finalist for a 2018 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work Nonfiction, and it won the 2018, well, and, and the 2018 Colorado Book Award for History. And tonight, Adrian's here to talk to us about his just published book, Black Smoke, African-Americans, and the United States of Barbecue. 
Um, and a little bit, just a brief bit more about Adrian's substantial background. Adrian received a degree in international relations from Stanford University in 1991. Again, nice, nice food background and a JD from the Georgetown University Law Center in 1995. From 1999 to 2001, uh, Adrian served as a special assistant to President Bill Clinton with his initiative for One America. Adrian had the first freestanding office in the White House to address issues of racial, religious, and ethnic reconciliation. And uh, he was directly in touch with our president then. Miller went on to serve as a senior policy analyst for Colorado Governor Bill Ritter Jr. from 2004 to 2010. And uh, he also served on the board for the Southern Food Boys Alliance from 2004 to 2010. And uh, just a little bit more here, if I can get my screen to move. Um, anyway, my screen's not moving and I can't read my notes for the rest. Here it goes. Sorry, folks, I'll be with you in two seconds. Uh, now to finish up, Adrian is currently executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches. And he's the first African-American and the first lay person to hold that position. Again, a typical food person. We're an interesting bunch, aren't we? So Adrian, come on down and blow us some of your delicious smoke. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Scott, for that introduction. Good to be with you all, culinary historians of Chicago. I always enjoy uh, talking to you. I have a ton of family in Chicago, so I feel like I'm coming home. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to um, essentially just kind of walk you through my book and give you the broad themes and some of the things that I discovered on this journey. And then, of course, I'm looking forward to the Q&A so we can start arguing about barbecue because I think that's a lot of fun. Okay, so this is me in one of my favorite barbecue joints in Denver, Colorado. It's called Boney's Barbecue. As you can see, I'm very impressed with this smokehouse platter that's in front of me. Unfortunately, Boney's Barbecue closed uh, due to the pandemic, but it was one of the last uh, Black-owned barbecue joints in Denver which is gonna to get to a theme I'll talk about in uh, a few moments. You are highly encouraged to do social media while I'm doing my presentation. On most platforms, I'm Soul Food Scholar. So please, if you're uh, loving the presentation and wanna give brother some love, I appreciate that. Uh, unless you have something negative to say, if you have a criticism, you know, just hold on to that. There's really no reason yet to share that on social media. All right, so Scott alluded to this a little bit earlier, but just to tell you about my writing journey, um, my first book was Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine. And that's really when I started looking at barbecue because so many soul food joints have a barbecue option on the menu, even if the barbecue is quote unquote, you know, baked. Um, and then so many black owned soul food or black owned barbecue joints have soul food dishes as, uh, as, as side dishes. So I thought, well, there's a, there's some kind of synergy going on here. Let me let me figure out what's going on here. But the more that I um, discovered barbecue and learned more about it, I just felt like they were two different things. Um, and then uh, after writing Soul Food, that also launched me on another journey to write about the president's kitchen cabinet because I discovered all these stories of African-Americans who have cooked for our first family. So those are my two books. But we're here to talk about barbecue. <laughs> Okay, I just had to give you that drive-in feel. All right, so here's what, what really launched me on this particular book. 
Uh, in 2004, the Food Network went really hardcore on barbecue programming. And so they really did a lot to emphasize uh, Bobby Flay as their barbecue expert. And there were a number of shows. So I was sitting there watching a commercial and they talked about this show called Paula, Paula Southern Barbecue. So I thought, oh, well, this will be good to watch because I'll just get a, a you know, survey of kind of hot trends and who's really important in Southern barbecue. So, um, and I thought it would help eventually in any kind of barbecue writing that I would do. So I'm watching this show. And then an hour later, my mouth is agape because as the credits are rolling, no African-Americans were on air talent. They weren't interviewed at all. And so several questions arose. First, I thought, well, you know, how does this even happen? And then the second thing that I thought about was, well, maybe I got it twisted. You know, maybe I didn't pay close attention to the commercial. Uh, maybe it was really Paula's Scandinavian barbecue sponsored by Alabama White Sauce. And I just got it twisted. Uh, so, you know, it's easy to kind of make or blame Paula for Paula Dean for all of this. But, you know, I got to thinking it's it's really more about the production company because uh, I've been involved in television shows where you're the on-air talent. And, you know, you really aren't involved in selecting who gets interviewed, where you go, that sort of thing. Um, and then so the production team and then also the people at Food Network who saw this programming, thought it was OK and put it on the air. So I started looking at other social um, media. I started looking at print media, film, magazines, all that kind of stuff. And what I noticed is that overall, African-Americans, for whatever reason, were not getting much love uh, when it came to barbecue. And so I really wondered what that was about. Now, this is all pretty weird to me because if you look at barbecue media for the previous 200 years, African-Americans were at the center of it. In fact, it would be really weird to have something about barbecue and not include African-Americans. So I'm gonna zoom in on this particular portrait here. So this is uh, from 1895. This was in Harper's Weekly. This was a, a uh, something called the Atlanta Exposition of 1895. So this was not only uh, widely spread as a story. I mean, it was in syndicated newspapers. It was very, very, um, it was an event that captured the public imagination. And so let's spend some time looking at this. First of all, you see that the typical way that this barbecue was cooked was a trench with some hardwood coals. Uh, typically whole animals were cooked and they were butterflied and uh, poles were stuck into the side of the blood of butterflied carcasses. And then somebody had to keep flipping that animal to cook it evenly and then also uh, somebody would, as you can go over to the side here, if you go over to the right, you see there's an African-American man who is uh, shoveling um, some coals. So he's, he's replenishing the coals from the fire, which indicates that there's a separate fire being maintained someplace. Um, and you've got African-Americans doing the labor. And then if you go to the top of the screen here, you see there's an African-American man who is tending some pots. Uh, given that this is in Georgia, he's probably making Brunswick stew which is a chicken and vegetable uh, soup. Uh, and then on the far right, you've got white people, you know, who are attending this event, just looking at the spectacle and marveling at it. And then uh, let's go back over to the left. Over there, you see the guy in the top hat. He is kind of, uh, you know, telling people what to do, not doing the work, but telling people what to do. Uh, and typically that's the role that white men played in barbecue in the late 1800s uh, or up until the late 1800s. Uh, and then we start to see a shift. So this is how barbecue was done for a long period of time. All right. But then fast forward to 2003, 
we're going to zoom in here. This is from Bon Appetit magazine. Now, this wasn't the cover story, but it was a main feature in the magazine. And um, it was about who's who in barbecue. So let's just spend a few moments here and just look and uh, try, try and tell me where the African-Americans are. You don't really see anybody, right? Uh, this is even harder than those where's, where's Waldo pictures, right? Because at least Waldo was in the picture. But we want to have that here. So in the middle, we have an Asian-American man with the beach ball. Uh, if you move over to his left, you can see a woman there by the grill. But basically, it's a bunch of white dudes. And that is a theme that we see really prevalent in barbecue from the 1990s to the present day. So the question is, how do we go from that depiction in 1895 to this in 2003. That's what sparked me to write barbecue about Black Smoke. Black Smoke is really a celebration of African-American barbecue culture, but also a restoration of African-Americans to the barbecue narrative in this country. Essentially, you can't write about barbecue in the United States without including African-Americans. All right, so I start by talking about the Native American foundations of barbecue. The early history that we often get of barbecue is a Caribbean origin story that, you know, Europeans arrive in the Caribbean. They see indigenous people doing a type of cooking they really don't recognize. And um, eventually in trying to grapple with how to describe this food process, they come up with the barbacoa. That was the Spanish term, which later becomes barbecue. And then that this type of cooking is brought to the mainland of North America, what would be called the American South, and that barbecue then is born when those cooking techniques and European whole animals are uh, brought to the mainland and then we get start getting barbecue. But you know, it just didn't add up to me because the way that barbecue emerges in the American South is different than what is described in the Caribbean. Uh, and so I wanted to suss out, you know, what is going on uh, in, in the uh, American South with indigenous people um, before we get to barbecue by the time we get to the 1700s and 1800s. And so I uh, combed through a lot of sources and looked at European descriptions of uh, Native American cooking techniques for meat. And often these cooking techniques were not only about consumption, but really about preservation. So one method is piercing sticks. And there was a couple ways that this could happen. One is to create kind of this framework where morsels uh, are basically shards of meat are affixed to some kind of lattice of sticks. And then what you would do is plant it in the ground and then you would move it towards the fire or move it back depending on how quickly you wanted that meat cooked. Um, this is very similar to what you may see in the Pacific Northwest with salmon. Um, and then another way was to uh, get a long stick, you get a morsel of meat and put it on the very edge of that stick and plant it in the ground. And then the weight of the morsel would bend it towards the fire. So if you didn't have time to just sit there and cook it yourself. You could just plant in the ground, go do something else, and then the meat would cook. And then there was a rotating spit. <clears throat> now, this was not made of metal because uh, indigenous people did, had not developed metallurgy at this point. And so this was all, again, um, done with sticks. And the rotating spit was something that Europeans would have recognized, right? Because it's very similar to how they cooked. They were using metal by this time, of course, but it's very similar to how they cooked. Another method, which was what we see in the Caribbean, is the raised platform. And so again, sticks planted in the ground and then a kind of a lattice type structure was create, created a platform and then small game, <clears throat> fish, vegetables, all kinds of things were laid on top of this. And there was a, low, a very slow fire beneath it. And essentially this was about preserving meat um, for later use. 
And then you have the earth oven. Now the earth oven is something that we see in cultures all around the world. And the idea with the earth oven is you deep, uh, you dig a hole that's several feet deep and you put on the bottom, you put your fuel, fuel source. So that would be wood and stones. You light the wood on fire and then uh, the fire heats the stones and the stones would retain the heat. And then you would layer moist vegetation meat and then you got to the top of the hole and then either you covered it with something or buried it and depending on when you started cooking if it was early in the day you would unbury this and bring everything out and eat it in the evening or if you started later in the day you might let this cook overnight and then the next morning you have a breakfast of champions but there was also a shallow pit method where um, instead of the vertical hole it was more of a horizontal hole and uh, again a combination of wood and stones and typically the meat was laid right on the stones for cooking. And my argument is, is that at some point, Europeans saw these various types of cooking and then they fused it with their faster cooking methods, not quite grilling, but close to it. And eventually it creates this trench method that we see in that picture in 1895. And that becomes barbecue. So I argue that barbecue is a hybrid cooking um, that develops and then later enslaved African-Americans are thrown into the mix. And the thing is, is by the time you get to the 19th century, blackness and barbecue are wedded. And here's an example. This is a Virginia barbecue article that was in a newspaper called the Bangor Whip, which was from Bangor, Maine. And so we have a northern writer who is trying to explain barbecue to his Maine neighbors. And what he decides to do is he decides to call upon one of his friends, a native Virginian, to explain what is legit barbecue. Uh, you know, and at that time, at that time, it was called Southern uh, Virginia barbecue. Later, it would be called Southern barbecue, and then later just barbecue. The interesting thing is that barbecue was so tied to Virginia that even when it happened in other places, it was still called Virginia barbecue. So we have accounts in the early 1800s of barbecue happening in a place like Kentucky. But they didn't call it Kentucky barbecue. They said we, we had a Virginia barbecue in Kentucky. But that later changes as barbecue gets more tied to place. And so this native Virginian, if we look in kind of the middle here, he's describing what has to happen. And he says, on the, on the previous day, meaning before the barbecue takes place, some favorite Negro man of reputation for skill and experience in the business is sent up with his assistants who proceed to make a kiln or pit of stones. So this is saying that, look, you can't have barbecue unless you have a black man involved. And barbecue is not only tied to blackness um, because of the expertise developed, but that extra expertise develops because of slavery. Essentially, old school barbecue was very labor intensive, right? Somebody had to find the area, the rural area, clear it of all debris, then chop down the trees, burn that wood into hardwood burning coals. Somebody had to dig the trench, Somebody had to fill that trench with those coals. Someone had to kill the animals, butcher them, process them, get them ready to be cooked in this particular way and stick the poles in the side of them. And then somebody had to do that cooking, sauce them while cooking, then serve them. And then even after the barbecue was over, someone had to entertain the guests. That was a black experience from start to finish because the racial dynamics of that time was if you're gonna ask somebody to do a ton of work and you're not gonna compensate them, enslaved people did that work. And so we see barbecues spreading around the South as slaveholders leave Virginia and go to different places. And so they bring their enslaved cooks who have that expertise. So by the time you get to the mid 19th century, 1850s, enslaved African-Americans are barbecues go-to cooks. And then even after emancipation, 
uh, enslaved uh, free African Americans who emerge from emancipation with this very coveted and marketable skill are essentially barbecue's go-to cooks and barbecue's most effective ambassadors. So we have newspaper account after newspaper account of African Americans being put on trains, boats, stagecoaches, all these places around the country in order to bring a taste of, of authentic Southern barbecue. So after laying this groundwork, I first talk about, you know, what happens when African-Americans barbecue on their own terms? And I thought about church barbecue because the black church is one of the earliest autonomous institutions in the black community. And um, in the early 1800s, preachers and politicians figured out that barbecue was a great way to bring a big crowd. So if you look on the left-hand side of the screen, we've got an ad from Montana in the 1920s, actually. And this is just showing, hey, we're going to have a big barbecue. And it just shows this guy, his expertise. Now, this is not the typical way that we think of barbecue because this is kind of a almost like a bull roast approach where this uh, huge animal carcass is cooked right above the flame. Um, but anyway, the point is to get across, hey, there's some good eats if you come over uh, and join us. And in, back in slavery, though, what you find is that um, a lot of times when the work schedule slowed, African-Americans had a little more play in their schedule and they could decide whether they wanted to have church or not. And barbecue was often a part of that. But one of the things that was really interesting, I found, is just this uh, the phenomenon of camp meetings or revivals. And these would be multi-day affairs where essentially there would be multi, you know, preaching for a long period of time. And then uh, uh, people after the preaching was done, there would be the eating. And uh, often barbecue was a part of that as well. And then on the right-hand side of your screen, I picked, um, and, and let me just back up and say, for every chapter, for the most part, um, I profile two individuals through barbecue history who I think really evoke the themes of that chapter. So this is a guy named Daddy Bruce Randolph Sr. Uh, in Denver, Colorado. He was born in 1900 and lived until 1994. Um, he was not ordained clergy but he was a man who lived his faith. Um, he was a great humanitarian. And so uh, he was from Pastoria, Arkansas, arrives in Denver in the 1960s, runs a, uh, a barbecue restaurant. But in short order, he creates a tradition where he serves bar a free Thanksgiving dinner to thousands of people. Um, by the time he gets to the 70s and 80s, he's feeding 10,000 people regularly. And he garnered a lot of, of uh, national press for that. So I just wanted to show example of a man who lived his faith um, and, and barbecue. Now I have to admit, um, barbecue has been very distractive, distracting to my own spiritual journey. Uh, every time that I read the Bible and I see the words burnt offerings, you know, I start thinking about barbecue. I think about the story of the burning bush. I wondered, you know, did it smell like hickory or oak or maybe mesquite to Moses? You know, so those things, I know I need counseling, but I'm just saying, you know, it's been distracting to my own journey. Uh, then I talk about the barbecue freelancers. So that, that's my term for these people who um, have the skill and are starting to uh, spread the good news of barbecue all around the country. And I picked another Colorado guy because I'm the author and I live in Colorado. Um, but this guy was uh, very interesting. His name's Columbus B. Hill. He's from West Tennessee. He shows up in Denver in the late 1870s. And uh, in short order, he's doing barbecues for 5,000, 10,000 people. Uh, when the cornerstone ceremony for the, the ceremony for laying the cornerstone of Colorado State Capitol building happened on July 4th, 1890, he did a barbecue for 25,000 people. Uh, at the end of the decade for the Denver Stock Show, um, he ended up inadvertently having a barbecue for 30,000 people when it was only intended for 5,000. So the setup here is the Denver Stock Show is a big deal. 
Um, it's where essentially people who raise livestock come, they trade, you know, they make deals, all kinds of stuff happens. And so at that time, it was in, it was not a guarantee that Denver was going to keep this fantastic showcase. And so the people who ran the stock show said, let's just have a VIP barbecue for 5,000 people. Well, word got out in the seedy part of Denver and ultimately 30,000 people showed up and it's, this all plays out in the newspapers. And there was a big food riot. Um, part of the problem was that somebody thought if, if they gave out free beer, it would actually chill people out. It had the opposite effect. In fact, the um, it was reported that the governor of Colorado and the mayor of Denver got on a grandstand with a bullhorn trying to get people to quiet down and, and just chill out. And they got uh, food thrown at them and they were chased off the stage. So it got kind of hectic. But um, the reason why I chose Columbus Bee Hill is because so many of these barbecue freelancers, as I call them, are unnamed. The press did not feel that it was work, excuse me, worthy um, of their attention to talk to them, to get their full name. Uh, if they're named, they're usually just uh, their first name. And again, that speaks to the racial etiquette of the time. And so this is one guy where he's interviewed extensively. So we get an idea of his background. We get an idea of his approach to barbecue. It's just very unusual. Um, in fact, uh, so he just was a, a very well, um, a very interesting person and what very well barbecue, you know, a very well-lived life in barbecue. Um, a footnote on him is that he died in Denver in 1923. I found his unmarked grave. And uh, before the pandemic, I was actually in the process of raising money to give him a, a proper headstone and have a ceremony to recognize uh, his barbecue greatness. But, you know, the pandemic the pandemic hit. So once the pandemic's over, I, I do hope to resume that. But Columbus B. Hill is just one example of the many uh, barbecuers who uh, spread this good food around the country. And either um, they would come to an area and make a cameo appearance, appearance, just do the barbecue and leave, or they would stay and stay for a long period of time. And then the next chapter is uh, just thinking about that is like, okay, you have all of these kind of freelancers out there. What happens when they, instead of living hand to mouth and just doing it sometimes, if they try to try to create a regular business. And so um, I feature Henry Perry. Henry Perry is one of the established uh, figures with Kansas City Barbecue. He's known as the god, uh, the grandfather, or uh, godfather, sorry, of uh, Kansas City Barbecue. He's recognized as kicking off that city's barbecue scene. Now, of course, there was barbecue happening before Henry Perry got there, but uh, he's often credited as the guy who really made it famous. So I talk about him. Um, then on the, and what's interesting, if you look at that newspaper ad from the 19, from 1917, you see that there's all kinds of stuff listed on the menu, right? Possum, groundhog, coon, very eclectic menu. And of course, um, you may not have the game on the menu, but Kansas City still lives up to that reputation of having a very eclectic barbecue menu. And then on the right-hand side of your screen is a woman named Ernestine Vanduval who uh, was born and raised in a place called Nicodemus, Kansas. If you don't know about Nicodemus, it was a community founded in 1876 by uh, formerly enslaved people who left the South for better opportunities um, and started an agricultural colony in Nicodemus. Um, it's a great story and I really encourage you to find out more history about this place. So she grows up there and um, she leaves to go to Pasadena, California to start a barbecue restaurant. Evidently, Walt Disney loved her food. But later in life, she returns back to Nicodemus and opens up a barbecue restaurant. Um, and uh, the barbecue restaurant exists to this day. Um, unfortunately, um, Ms. Vandeval died several years ago, but um, her niece, Angela Bates, 
keeps the restaurant going. Now, Nicodemus is pretty much a ghost town now. There's very few people actually living there. But every uh, year in late July, early August, they have a, what they call a town reunion. It's like a family reunion. And anybody's welcome. And so on that weekend, uh, Angela Bates kicks, uh, opens up the restaurant and runs it. And then she pretty much runs the restaurants on weekends because that's when most of the tourists arrive in Nicodemus. But not all barbecue entrepreneurs were welcome. So this is a headline from the Chicago Defender in 1922. And you can see they had an attitude about these barbecue vendors, mainly because they felt like they were unsanitary. So this, you know, see this headline, germ dealers imperil health on South Side. Does these barbecues sold out of dirt holes, but unsanitary cooks? Um, and the year before, I'm going to read this from my book. Um, there was this time there was the, the Chicago Defender in an editorial uh, said, thank heaven for the wintertime. It is to be hoped that the same chili blast that kills the germs in the alleys and in the air will so stiffen the dirty barbecue hucksters that they will pass away like the last summer, never to return again. So Chicago Defender was not feeling these people. And you see editorials like this in other places. And mainly it's because um, people were worried about the sanitation of these barbecues because they were improvising, right? They were using bread spring, springs. They were using bathtubs. They're doing whatever they can uh, to make barbecue and sell it. Uh, and then I uh, explore this idea of the African-American barbecue aesthetic. Like, is there something different about the way that African-American barbecue culture has uh, progressed? compared to majority barbecue culture. And one big difference is sauce. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that say barbecue should be on sauce. We'll talk about that in a moment, but sauce is a big deal uh, that I've noticed, as far as I've noticed in African-American barbecue. So on the left-hand side, you've got this cartoon that was printed in the uh, Kansas City Star when Arthur Bryant, a famous barbecue guy out of Kansas City died in 1982. That is a depiction of him at heaven, uh, you know, the he pearly gates, with St. Peter. And the first question that St. Peter asked is, did you bring the sauce? And then on the right-hand side of your screen, um, I include this. This is a advertisement from a newspaper in the Atlanta area in um, 1911. And the reason why I'm including this is because this is one of the earliest ads for barbecue sauce that you'll find. And again, it's very Black-centered, right? Um, the, the person in this is an old elderly African-American man who's doing pit barbecue. And uh, he's presented as an, an expert. It's not a caricature. And so I was really fascinated by this. And I have to tell you, I'm shocked that there, there was not a um, figure like Aunt Jemima or Uncle Ben or Faustus that arose in barbecue, given the deep connections that exist with barbecue and commerce. But it just never really happens. This is the closest we get, as far as I can tell. And then, you know, since I'm talking to a Chicago crowd, uh, one of my profiles, I do profile RGB Collins and mumbo sauce. So I'm just letting you know. And I, I just love this painting of him. I mean, that's one smooth brother, right? I mean, I just love that. So I do talk about uh, Collins. And what, you know, one thing about Collins, let me just go back for a second, is that, you know, he was a very, he was very visionary uh, in the way that he decided, hey, look, I'm not going to stick to the African-American market. I'm actually going to go for the mainstream market. Um, and his efforts to get a jewel and other things were just very visionary for his time. So I'm glad to include him in my book. Uh, and then I talk about competition barbecue and I give my thoughts as to why you don't see so many African-Americans on the barbecue competition circuit. I think mainly it's about money. I mean, right now, if you wanted to be, you know, if you were serious about barbecue, you're going to put in thousands of dollars because you got to have your rig, you got to have all that meat, the entry fees, you got to travel, 
Um, you know, it's, it's quite the endeavor. Now, on the flip side, if you do well on the barbecue circuit, you can make a lot of money. I mean, there are contests now where you can win $50,000 in one weekend. Um, but the chances of that are almost astronomical. Um, even, even the best barbecuers can do, you know, make put forth a good effort in that win. Um, so I want to show you this picture. You probably have heard of the Memphis and May camp competition. So this is Bessie Caffey. And um, she's the first winner of the Memphis and May competition in 1978. And as you can see, she shows up with a very basic barbecue uh, setup. Now, can you imagine a black woman showing up with a bare, with a minimal setup and winning that competition now? It's it's just unimaginable, right? Um, that's because of the scale and all the comp the commercial aspect of barbecue that exists today. But the profile I do is a woman of named Sylvie Curry, known as the Lady of Q. And um, she's probably the most, rec most recognizable African-American woman on the barbecue circuit today. Um, and she's just, a, she's just really interesting. And what's fascinating about her is that when she competes in these competitions, she does this all by herself because she doesn't want to be bothered with anybody messing around. She's like, it's Sylvie time, so leave me alone. Um, but she does quite well. And if you have Netflix, she is actually on um, a show called America's Barbecue Showdown. It, it deb debuted several months ago. I'm not going to give it away, but uh, she goes deep in the competition and you will be very impressed and hungry after you see some of the food that she makes. Uh, and then in talking about African-American barbecue aesthetic, I kind of go through the regional styles and uh, show African-American contributions and also some areas that don't get much love. So the Carolinas, as you know, um, Virginia barbecue and Carolina barbecue are really very similar and arguably Eastern North Carolina and Virginia barbecue are the same thing. Um, but in Eastern North Carolina, it's about cooking whole hogs and, uh, you know, applying a vinegar and red pepper sauce throughout the cooking process, not at the very end, that gives it a depth of flavor. Uh, when you get to the Western part of the state, uh, it's more about cooking pork shoulders. Uh, you'll have different kinds of sauce. There's a little tomato in it, things like that. So here's a plate from a place that I love in Dudley, North Carolina. It's called Grady's Barbecue. Um, so you've got the, you know, the chopped pork there, and then you've got a slaw that's very minimal. You know, it's pretty much the cabbage and some vinegar and a little bit of seasoning and then hush puppies, which are cornmeal, a type of cornmeal fritter. That's something you very, very much see in Carolina barbecue. Uh, and then I talk about deep South barbecue, which is usually spare ribs, uh, pork shoulder, soul food or Southern side dishes, greens, mac and cheese, you know, all of that stuff. And then um, in the deep South, usually Brunswick stew, which I mentioned earlier, which is this chicken and vegetable uh, uh, stew that's often served with barbecue. Uh, and then I talked about Memphis. To me, uh, Memphis is barbecue's funky town. There's all kinds of stuff happening in Memphis. All of it's delicious, but I'll, I'll admit some of it's very weird. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, but this is from a place called Payne's Barbecue. And I got the chopped pork sandwich, which I think Besides the barbecue spare ribs, whether wet or dry, I think Memphis is really known for the chopped pork sandwich topped with coleslaw. At Payne's, though, they top their uh, sandwich with a mustard slaw. So the tanginess, uh, the crispness of the slaw, man, is to me, this is the platonic form of pork sandwiches. That's just my opinion. And then below, we've got Chicago, you know, the Aquarian smokers, um, you know, lot ribs, rib tips. Uh, hot link sausages, uh, fries, all of that stuff um, is marked by Chicago barbecue, Southside Chicago. And, you know, Chicago, uh, what, what really irks me is that when people are talking about regional styles, 
no one ever talks about Southside Chicago. I mean, they'll talk about Owensboro, Kentucky, and the fact that they do mutton with this black dip sauce, but no love for Chicago. I mean, what's up with that? Uh, then we go East Texas. This is another part of the country when it comes to barbecue styles that doesn't get any love. Um, so East Texas, like Beaumont area, uh, very influenced by Creole um, because of neighboring, uh, you know, Louisiana. And so it's a place where you're going to have you're going to have the pork, you're going to have the brisket. Uh, but usually East Texas barbecue is um, much messier than kind of the central Texas that everyone's gushing over right now. Uh, Texas barbecue that everyone's gushing over right now. You know, so it's going to be uh, chopped beef. Uh, they have like a almost gravy like sauce there. They serve it with something called boudin. And boudin is the sausage, like a Creole sausage. But interestingly, in East Texas, they spell boudin with an A. So like Anthony de Bourdain, um, it's kind of spelled like that. So I don't know how that happened, but that's something that you see in East Texas. And again, when people say Texas barbecue, they go to Central Texas. They don't pay any attention to East Texas. And I think that's messed up. Um, and you also get Creole side dishes like dirty rice, which is a heavily seasoned rice. Uh, a lot of times it has meat mixed up in it. And then you got Kansas City, heavily influenced by African-Americans. Again, I mentioned um, the eclecticness, uh, eclectic nature of Kansas City barbecue. I call it a melting pit, uh, but things like ham, mutton, ribs, chicken. I mean, almost everything shows up in Kansas City. Uh, growing up in Denver, Colorado, it was the heaviest influence on our barbecue scene in my city. So um, it's still my favorite regional style, not just, you know, because it just brings back memories of childhood. Uh, and so, you know, people ask me, well, you know, what makes African-American barbecue exceptional? Um, you know, and I've been asked, well, what's the difference between when black people cook barbecue and white people cook barbecue? You know, my snarky answer is that, well, black people's barbecue is better. But if I'm asked to give more details, I'll say, well, you know, typically with African-American joints, despite wherever you are in the country, usually you're going to find pork ribs uh, on the menu and the pork ribs are going to have the rib tip attached. So the St. Louis cut that you've heard of is just an effort to make a, a slab of ribs look more rectangular and uniform in its appearance so that rib tip is cut off. We know that that led to a whole style. Leon Finney um, decided, hey, I'm going to make some money just making rib tips and led to a, a distinctive part of Chicago's barbecue scene. Um, you've got chopped pork. You see chopped pork all over the place. It's never called pull. Um, I've been in a lot of barbecue joints, black owned barbecue joints um, in different parts of the country. And it's usually just called chopped pork. And this is the pork shoulder that's cooked. Uh, chicken, I see chicken all, all over the place. Now, I do have to talk to you all when we get to the Q&A section um, of this presentation because I'm mystified by what you call barbecue chicken in Chicago. Because from what I can tell, it's just fried chicken dipped in barbecue sauce. So, you know, please disabuse me of that if I've got it twisted. But that's what I noticed in the south side and west side joints that I went to. And then hot link sausages. So, you know, you see sausages in a lot of places in barbecue nation, but in African-American traditions, it's usually going to be really spicy and more coarsely ground um, and usually pork. But of course, you can have pork and beef mixture, but usually pork. Uh, and I talked about rib tips uh, created by the, um, you know, the St. Louis cut. Uh, the interesting thing about rib tips is um, now they're just everywhere. It's, it's officially bar food in a lot of places. So rib tips are all over the place and they're getting kind of expensive actually when they were a really cheap thing. Um, but you know, uh, a beautifully made rib tip is a glorious thing to behold. Um, and then in Kentucky and uh, St. Louis and Illinois, kind of Southern Illinois, 
there's a pork steak tradition. So the Monroe County is a re- reference to a county in Kentucky. But usually what, what happens is the pork shoulder is frozen. And while it's frozen, it's cut into um, like a half inch thick or maybe even thinner um, steaks, quote unquote. And then they are quickly grilled. And then a, usually a spicy barbecue sauce is applied. But um, there's there were several people that do this, but I see it a lot in African-American owned barbecue joints in that area. Uh, then we we'll talk about Memphis again, uh, barbecue bologna. If you ever never had barbecue bologna, okay, this is not the bologna that, you know, you have the thin slice, you're at home after school, you can't wait to dinner. So you, you, you know, you get your skillet out and you fry that bologna, it pops up, you slit it and you put some cheese on it. It's not that kind of bologna. I mean, it's bologna, but it's not made that way. So what they do to make barbecue bologna is they get the tube bologna, they stab slits in it, put it on the smoker for several hours. And then when it's time to uh, you, you order your sandwich, they'll cut uh, usually a half inch um, thick slice, put it on the grill to get some char on it. And then it's white bread, bologna. If you want slaw, they'll put that, some sauce, white bread, sandwich, awesome. Uh, Memphis also has something called barbecue spaghetti. So imagine spaghetti with no marinara and you use barbecue sauce instead and it's highly seasoned kind of sauce. Uh, and then you have uh, grilled meat that you add to it. Again, it's just something that's spectacular. Um, also, uh, burnt ends. So burnt ends are very popular right now. And there's a lot of kind of mythology about burnt ends. But burnt ends is an example of something that has a clear origin story, uh, for the most part, <laughs> where uh, this guy, Arthur Bryant, who I mentioned earlier, um, when he served brisket in his restaurant, uh you know, brisket was trimmed in order to make a, pre, a you know, a decent presentation to the consumer. And so his stroke of genius was to take those scraps, you know, the really crispy, bristly kind of rendered fat and a little bit of meat, all that stuff, the charred ends of the, of the point end of the brisket, chop it all up and put it in a bowl. And he gave it away for free. And so the idea was that customers would just dip in and munch on it uh, while they were waiting for their food. Now, today, um, because the demand for burnt ends got so high, what what uh, barbecue purveyors started to do was they actually started to add brisket meat to that and create these very perfectly manicured Instagrammable cubes that you see today. Um, and so that's an example of gentrification actually in barbecue. But burnt ends, if you actually go to the authentic burnt ends, which is still served in some Kansas City joints today, it's really like shards of meat um, is really what burnt ends started out as. All right. So now if I had some romantic music, I would be cueing it right now. But essentially, my argument at the end of the book is that African-Americans are not getting any love in barbecue media because barbecue media has fallen deeply, softly, maddingly, tenderly, whatever you want to describe in love with white dudes who barbecue. And I argue that there's really four types of white dudes uh, who barbecue. So you've got the Tuffy Stone, this is from a picture of a show, very popular show called Barbecue Pitmasters. So you got Tuffy Stone, he's like the competition guy, right? Very accomplished, world champion. You got Myron Mixon, who's a hybrid because he's very accomplished on the barbecue circuit, competition circuit, but he represents the Bubba type, right? The working class kind of rural white guy. And then you've got Aaron Franklin, who I argue is the most popular and recognizable barbecue guy on the planet right now. Um, He's the hipster. So interesting facial hair, glasses, tattoos, that kind of thing. And then over on the left hand, right hand side of your screen, you've got Bobby Flay, the toku smoke. 
And these are essentially fine dining chefs who are in barbecue in a way they never were before 20 years ago. And um, the message that has now been sent to African-Americans by barbecue media is, hey, we're just not that into you. So why does this happen? And I, my argument is it's because of foodies, really. They're, they're the ones that drive this. Um, maybe not intentionally, but it's something that happens as we get more and more foodies in the late 80s and early 90s. And foodies are people who are intensely interested in food, much more adventuresome in their palate than their parents' generation. Um, they've got some money and they'll travel and they want authentic food experiences. Now, at the very time that foodies are on the rise, barbecue is getting much more popular in the late um, 80s and early 90s. And um, so foodies start asking questions, right? And so there's a rise in food media to serve this immense group of consumers that has emerged. And um, foodies are asking two questions. What's barbecue and where do I get the good stuff? And at the very time that foodies are looking for information about barbecue, food media, which is usually not diverse and apparently not interested in diversity, put forth white dude after white dude after white dude as barbecue's experts. Now, um, one thing I wanna make clear is I think there's plenty of room in the cookout for everybody, but um, it's disheartening that so many experts were conferred and so much expertise was conferred on white men who were doing barbecue um, and that was not spread around. And that's what starts to happen in the 90s to the point where we get the media that I've described. Um, and you know, it's, it's just, you see the effect of all of this. So there's an emerging conventional wisdom now on barbecue. Uh, and this is reorienting barbecue away from the African-American aesthetic. So first of all, it's low and slow, right? That legitimate barbecue is cooked at a low temperature between 200 and 250 for a long period of time. Um, well, I know quite a few African-Americans who cook hot, fast, then slow. And so, you know, is there room for that type of cooking in this emerging conventional wisdom about barbecue? Um, using lesser cuts of meat. Now, this is not the way barbecue has always been. Uh, the early, the first few centuries of barbecue was all about whole animal cooking. And the uh, use of lesser cuts of meat really is a reflection of barbecue moving from a rural context to an urban context. Uh, minimal seasoning, right? Just salt and pepper, you really need to taste the meat. But we know a lot of barbecue people are into the rubs, and the marinades and other things. Um, and you know, does everybody have to barbecue with Wagyu beef or Kobe beef? I don't think so. But, you know, you start to hear these things um, and that there's no sauce. Now, this is the one that really gets on my nerves, because I think if you talk to a lot of African-Americans, if someone said the barbecue should be unsauced, I think they would say, says who? Um, so that's the emerging conventional wisdom on barbecue. Now, this has consequences because this uh, group of consumers who are being informed of what barbecue is, when they're going to places that don't match up with that, they criticize them on social media. They don't support these places. They say it's not real barbecue. Um, and you may think this is all harmless fun, but this actually has consequences for a lot of entrepreneurs. And then I uh, end by talking about barbecue's future. So I, I featured this guy, Rodney Scott. I'm sure you've heard of him. He's a whole hog barbecue guy um, out of South Carolina. He's originally from Hemingway, South Carolina, but he now has a barbecue restaurant in, Char uh, in Charleston um, and also in Birmingham and Atlanta. He's got some money behind him. He's a great guy. He's got a very interesting story. And so, uh, you know, it's very interesting to see what may come out of his experience and whether he can take his brand of barbecue, this whole hog barbecue, and there's other stuff on the menu, but his bread and butter is whole hog barbecue, um, whether there's a national appetite for that. I just don't know. 
Um, the other thing about Rodney Scott is uh, he recently came out with a cookbook called Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue. Great cookbook. Here's the tripped out thing. It is the first cookbook by an African-American pit master in three decades. So just let that sink in. Think about how many books on barbecue come out every single year. Why hasn't there ever been a book deal given to an African-American until this point? All right. And then um, another whole hog guy I talk about is Ed Mitchell. Now, the interesting thing about Ed Mitchell is he's a legendary barbecue guy out of North Carolina. Um, the thing is his son, who was in the corporate kind of private equity world, has really just decided to join forces with his father. Uh, and they were going to open a restaurant and then the pandemic hit, but now I think they're back on track to opening this summer. And again, it's a similar dynamic. They've got some money behind them. They've got a process. They've got expertise. And so we'll just see what they're able to do going forward. On the right-hand side of your screen is some whole hog that they did at the something called the uh, Big, Block, Big Apple Block Party. Um, and that was a big barbecue event that took place um, for several years, but they actually had to cancel it because I think it just got too popular. I mean, you had 60,000 people or something like that descending on a very small area in New York. And so it was just not manageable any longer. And so we no longer have that. But he was bringing his taste of uh, whole hog barbecue to uh, hungry New Yorkers. Uh, then I also uh, write about the Jones sisters. I don't know if you're a, a fan of Queer Eye, but the Jones sisters uh, made an appearance, I think last year. And their business took off after that appearance. I mean, they're, they're especially their sauce business. They're sending it all over the place. But the, they're, they're lovely. Uh, they're, they're so much fun to be around, and they make great barbecue. But one thing I think is great about the Jones sisters, they have created a barbecue vending machine. I mean, is that the future? Like, if, you know, the future is now? I mean, that is so cool. So 24-7, you can get, you know, sauce. You can get a barbecue sandwich. You can get a platter all this kind of stuff. I just think that's amazing. Um, and then I take a look at current kind of trends, current trends in African-American barbecue. So one of the hottest trends right now is Turkey. And so you're seeing Turkey show up in all kinds of places, like in Eastern North Carolina, um, instead of chopped uh, pork, you're getting chopped Turkey. Uh, you're getting Turkey tips and Turkey wings in uh, Chicago. In fact, in, in my top 20 list, I list uh, Quincy's tip wings and tips as um, one of my favorite or tips and wings is one of my favorite barbecue places in the whole country. And a lot of he has turkey hot links. You know, you're just finding that. And this mirrors the trend in soul food in general. In the 80s and 90s, we saw a transition from, you know, de-emphasizing pork and more people using smoked turkey and others things to find like a, a get a healthier vibe and soul food. And so now we're seeing that in barbecue. So here's an example of something from St. Louis. These are turkey ribs. And so a turkey rib is essentially taking the shoulder blade and butchering it in a way so that there's meat on, on, on all around that shoulder blade. And so it mimics a rib. And so um, I would say that this really was popular in St. Louis, but it's starting to show up in a lot of other, other places. So turkey is a big trend. And then the other trend that's big is plant-based barbecue. Now that is definitely stretching the norms of barbecue, but there's a plant called jackfruit. I don't know how many of you have ever had jackfruit. It's native to Southeast Asia, but for somebody who knows what they're doing, they can make jackfruit look, taste, and feel in the mouth like pork. Now, I've had it done. Now, not everybody can do that. I've had some bad jackfruit barbecue, 
But for those who know what they're doing, they can mimic that taste. And so you're seeing more explorations of plant-based barbecue. And then, you know, I, I muse about some other trends that are coming, right? And actually these things are here. I shouldn't even say they're coming. So right now there is the ability to grow lab in a, in a, a meat in a lab. Um, and so uh, they, they haven't figured out how to rip, uh, replicate bones, but essentially the flesh can be grown in a lab. So this could have huge imp implications for meat sustainability, animal welfare issues, right? But the, the big thing is like, do, are people gonna accept lab grown meat? And then also you can 3D print meat now. They, they can do that now. So, you know, the question is, you know, will people eat this? Uh, will brothers and sisters be grubbing on impossible ribs in the future? You know, I don't know, but I at least wanted to raise the question. So uh, in summary, I thought I was going to be writing an elegy, um, like with some sadness of the passing of barbecue, but I'm actually excited after going through this history because um, we have some bright signs happening right now. We're getting more African-Americans into the Barbecue Hall of Fame. Um, there are, I, I can't share publicly, but I know of several African-Americans who now have cookbook deals. Uh, so we should be seeing more cookbooks by African-Americans, barbecue cookbooks by African-Americans in the coming years, uh, in print media and television shows, uh, there's starting to be more African-Americans on these shows. Not a lot. I mean, we could do better, but at least it's a start. Um, and then there may be fewer brick and mortar African-American owned barbecue joints, but what I'm seeing is that the roadside people, the people in parking lots, food trucks, and other things, I, I see that those are proliferating. So I think the barbecue scene has just shifted. Um, and so, uh, you know, not an allergy, but I'm excited for barbecue's future. All right. So that's me, Soul Food Scholar. Thank you for the, being along uh, this journey with me. And now I will take your questions. How about we'll just begin by clearing what's in the chat? Just to take care of that. Uh, by the way, Meathead is here tonight. Hey, Meathead. Thanks for joining Meathead, us. Let me let me unmute him. Or he could unmute. You know what? Why don't you unmute yourself? Because he, he wanted to know about that gravestone. Yeah. Uh, you should be able to unmute yourself, Meathead. I hope. If he's still here. So we, we are in the presence of greatness. He is a Barbecue Hall of Fame finalist. Oh. Can you hear me now? Yes, we yeah. can. Well, I, I was just curious. You talked about uh, the gravestone and raising money. How much do you need? So uh, pre-pandemic, they gave me a price of 3000 Yikes. Yeah. And that was supposed to be a deal. So, um, but yeah, that's a, that's the price they gave me. So um, <laughs> send me more information. Let's see if I can. Uh, I got a pretty good following. Let's see if we can raise that money for you. All right. Thank you so much. And congratulations on being a finalist. Yeah. So are any white people going to get in this year? <laughs> I don't know. They got in last year, um, but we'll see. Uh, uh, did you want to say anything else, Nathan? No, go ahead. Uh, okay. Because uh, Joan Hirsch, she inquired, uh, were there any major health disasters that would have made the Chicago Defender a black run paper be so down on barbecuers? Well, there's nothing reported, right? So this must be stuff like community, you know, maybe urban street uh, myths and all of this kind of stuff. I, I just think uh, it was a reflection of you've got these Southern migrants who are considered, you know, low class, not hygienic. And so I, I think it's a reflection of class perceptions um, because, you know, a lot of times these migrants were showing up to communities that had pre-existing black communities and these black communities. And it wasn't just Chicago, it's in other places. You can see this. 
and I, I actually write about it in my book, you know, um, they weren't welcoming in a lot of cases to these. So I, I think it may be more class perception than act, than reality. But uh, obviously some people must have gotten sick um, for the, the Defender editorial staff to at least note it. Well, I mean, you can't barbecue on anything. I mean, even now that would be a problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. You could never do that today. Yeah. Although um, you, do, you hear stories of people cooking in bathtubs and on bed springs. I mean, I've heard those stories. Right, but it's the it's the it's the metal and the metal coatings that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Monica Barnes observes. She says fire halls in upstate New York have huge chicken barbecues over open pits as summer fundraisers, and they might barbecue two hundred to three hundred chickens in one afternoon. Now, I, I'm just going to throw this out: Can that be chicken grilling or chicken barbecue? Because barbecue is one thing, and grilling is something else. Yeah, I mean, if they're cooking at that level, it may be more like barbecue. If they're cooking that number over an open pit, I would I would guess that it's probably more like barbecue. In, in I, upstate I New York, that. can you okay. hear me? Yeah, yes. yes. In upstate New York, Cornell chicken is the, um, the, the recipe invented by a professor at the uh, uh, food <laughs> science department at Cornell. And it's all over upstate New York, Little League games, state fair. If she's doing that many chickens at uh, upstate, it's essentially a grilled chicken um, uh, done on an open pit with no cover um, and flipping, 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 flipping. And it's pretty good. The marinade is sort of a mayonnaise based marinade. So I have the recipe on my website, amazingribs.com. Wow. I also included a link to um, the Cornell Extension publication that says how to build the pit. Um, and, and the recipes and everything that's in the chat. Okay. But, but, but it's cooking on a metal, uh, some kind of metal platform though. Typically on a grate, uh, an expanded metal grate or, um, uh, volunteer fire departments all do it. Um, the original recipe is a little heavy on the salt. Um, yeah. modern recipes are a little less. Gotcha. Okay. It's basically grilling. Really? Okay. I want to experience it. I've never had it, so I need to check it out. Right. Uh, and by the way, in Chicago, uh, according to um, Bonnie and Brad Davidson, Upton's in Chicago makes barbecue jackfruit. And I asked them, and I don't think they answered, was it really barbecue or was it the stuff simmered in a pot for a long time? Because that sometimes is called barbecue and it's not. Yeah. Uh, somebody asked, how about Caribbean influences? So, yeah, I was looking into that. So, um, you know, because I think there's an argument to be made that maybe jerk barbecue could be an antecedent of Southern barbecue. Um, as I say in my book, I, I just don't see that. I didn't see a lot of evidence of that. Um, and, you know, it's problematic, right? Because we're dealing with some cultures that are oral traditions. And so I'm relying on the reports of Europeans and others on what they saw. And what we know now is that a lot of times even those reports aren't accurate. Um, so I just, I, I leave the door open, um, but I just have to see someone the dots, but it seems to me basically on what we, what we, um, what's reported of what's going on in the Caribbean. I have not seen a picture that's similar to this trench method on uh, the way that barbecue was played out in the American South. Um, and it's curious to me that these Europeans would draw all of, you know, all these raised platforms and other things, and they wouldn't notice, note that either, because when Southern barbecue emerges, I mean, the foreign press 
foreign audiences were also intrigued with uh, Southern barbecue, this trench method and the, and the whole idea of the, um, the, the as, a, as an entertainment and a cooking process. You know, um, the, the whole thing gets very complicated. You were talking about the emergence of Turkey. Um, it's my belief that the Disney World and Disneyland properties are the root of that. They have been serving smoked turkey legs, drumsticks, um, for many years, which people are madly in love with. And I think that is the progenitor of all this barbecue turkey. Yeah, but there's also, I think, I think some of the, uh, like, for instance, we had years, in fact, Jessica here's, we're going to mention in a moment, but I remember that we had a, a program on Grits and Greens, the, the program Charlotte what we're talking about from 20 years ago, and a lot of dietitians were like, instead of using bacon and fat belly and whatever to flavor the greens, they were trying to get people to use smoked turkey. And I know Jessica Harris wasn't very thrilled with that. You know, there's no thing is healthy. And she was very critical of the idea to make soul food healthy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely turkey legs have been a long time, around a long time. I didn't know about Disney World and Disneyland because I just haven't been there since I was a little kid. But definitely on the festival, you know, the, you know, these state fairs and all of that. I mean, smoked turkey legs have been around for a long time. But I, I just don't know about these other iterations of turkey, you know, the turkey ribs, I think. Uh, but the, the chopped turkey in eastern North Carolina is a recent thing. And then making turkey links, uh, sausage hot links, um, chicken and, and turkey. I think that's a relatively new thing. Uh, Joan pointed out that Jessica Harris's Netflix show High on the Hog drops on May 26th. Yes. And yours truly is in two of the four episodes. <laughs> now, I have not seen this, so I don't know how I come across. So I hope it's good. But yeah, it, that the, that special is getting a lot of buzz. Uh, Amy Mather wondered, uh, wondering if you have crossed paths with Dr. Howard Conyers, a scientist from NASA who's also a South Carolina pitmaster. He was yeah. on a show called Nourish on PBS. Yeah. So I, I give a shout out to Dr. Conyers in my book. Um, I didn't want to steal. Uh, he's working on some stuff, so I didn't want to steal his thunder by going too much into his work. But yeah, I give him a shout out. So yes, I have met him. An interesting guy. So I uh, look forward to see what he's going to uh, come up with. Um, but he's he's looking at the same thing, right? He's looking at the history of barbecue uh, and he's steeped in it as a practitioner. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what, what comes of his work in the coming uh, year. Peggy inquired, uh, by the way, she said the Netflix show it was reviewed by Kim Severson today in the New York Times. But she asked a question, is Western Kentucky more about mutton than beef? So that that's kind of the that's the way it's been distilled. But in my exploration of Kentucky barbecue, I mean, there, there's it's just more about it's it's more than mutton. So they have beef, pork. Um, there's a lot going on. So I'm, I'm not sure why or how Kentucky barbecue got distilled to just this one thing. Uh, but that's the one that gets the most press. But yeah, it, it's much more diverse. Um, they definitely have beef uh, in in Kentucky barbecue. Okay. Uh, okay. Cynthia said, fun having both Adrian and Meat Hood here as both contributed to my book, Pigs, Pork, and Heartland Hogs. Ah, makes us feel kind of like family. Yeah. Uh, interesting thing about Austin. Uh, this is from Scott uh, Hansen. Uh, interesting thing about Austin is that Franklin is right on the cusp of East Austin, but much of East Austin was historically Black and Mexican and segregated. 
and is now gentrifying and pushing out its earlier residents. Sam's Barbecue, established in 1957, has been offered millions, but has been still holding on. Yeah, no, that's that's the that, that's been the case in communities around the country. You know, um, a lot of these barbecue joints have closed. Well, first of all, it's just hard to run a restaurant anyway. Um, but then, you know, sometimes it's a generational story. The kids are just not interested in carrying on the business. Sometimes it's gentrification. Um, and then uh, other times it's been uh, the growth of cities towards a place. And so, you know, you'll have this barbecue restaurant that opened up with not a lot of neighbors. And then the neighbors come in and then all of a sudden they're making complaints about uh, smoke and other things. Uh, so, you know, sometimes these barbecue entrepreneurs are put through the ringer. Um, but in the case of Sam's, I mean, I don't know if this is true or not. I heard they got offered $5 million. That's mm. uh, kind of hard to turn that down. So, um, but I've been to Sam's and, uh, you know, I'd loved, I talked to one of the owners and I just loved hearing about how he got into barbecue and, and what they're doing. Sam is one of the cool institutions of Texas barbecue, and it's the only barbecue joint I know in the country where they have to keep their wood under lock and key. <laughs> wow. Hey, um, Linda asked, what are your favorite barbecue restaurants across the country? Yeah. So um, in my book, I have a top 20 list. Um, so uh, some of them I've already mentioned in this presentation, but uh you know, I love this place called Grady's in Dudley, North Carolina. Um, it's an older black couple. Uh, you know, they're in the 70s. So who, who knows how much longer they're going to be doing it? Um, you know, in the Chicago area, I talked about Quincy's uh, Tips and Wings, but I also like Honey One. And I like the place called Sunny's on the south side, too. Um, I thought that was really good stuff. Um, and then there's Bloodsoe's. Uh, there's a guy named Clevin, Kevin Bloodsoe. He runs a place in Los Angeles. He used to have a place in Compton, but now there's other places on La Brea. I thought that was really good. Um, Dreamland Barbecue is good. Also Archibald's. Um, that, that's another place in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And the thing I like about Dreamland is at least in the early iteration of the restaurant, it was just pretty much ribs, white bread, and, and a beverage. So you would come in and you'd sit down and they just the server would ask you, how many do you want? Um, and then in Kansas City, I love this place called LC's. Mm. Um, the owner died a few weeks ago, so I don't oh, know no. what quality is like now. Um, but I, I really liked LC's. So those are some of the places that come to mind. Uh, Lucy Long, uh, it, it, I asked her to unmask. She had a, a rather a statement to make or a question. Go ahead, Lucy. So, okay. Hi, Adrian. Hey. I don't know if you remember me, but we've, we've chatted. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've emailed, yeah. And I think we met in person one time, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one, of, one of the food conferences. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was just curious. I'm from North Carolina originally, um, you know, and, you know, when, when when I was growing up, there was no barbecue up in the mountains, you know, where my where my father's family was from. Mm. Um, and then and then all the barbecue in the Piedmont, you know, that was definitely on the other side of the tracks, you know, mm -hmm. as, as, as they would say, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then all of that started shifting, you know, and, and now it's very, very common, you know, to find these little barbecue shacks in the mountains, you know, and, and this is, it's not, you know, it's not refined stuff at all. You know, this is, they, they have like hillbilly images and, mm -hmm. you know, whiskey jugs and, and, and that kind of thing, um, you know, which is, you know, and, and a lot of people are now assuming, you know, that barbecue is a traditional Appalachian tradition. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. 
Yeah, um, you know, including people in Appalachia. You know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, and it's a it's a, a completely separate thing from from some of the real trendy, real fine dining kinds of uh, barbecue places that are opening. You know, in places like Asheville. Um, you know, and and well bones. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, you know. So I'm I'm just kind of kind of wondering. You know, if you're aware of this and if you have any thoughts on it, you know, because it's, it, you know, it's kind of like the Appalachian people, you know, are, they're, they're the lowest on the totem pole, you know, within within the white hierarchy, <laughs> you know. And, and so, you know, it was blacks and, and, and hillbillies, you know, who were doing barbecue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so, so thanks for that. I did not know that. Um, I'm actually a little surprised that there isn't a barbecue tradition there, but you know, now that you say that and all of my, you know, pouring through Appalachian, uh, cookbooks, I, I just, I don't remember any barbecue recipes actually now mm-hmm. that you say that. Um, so, but uh, I'm not surprised by the recent trendiness of barbecue and that people are opening up joints and they're doing this, you know, hillbilly affectation. I'm not surprised by that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, that's like similar. You know, you see a lot of the, you know, the places with the license plates on the walls and exactly. Yeah, that 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 kind of stuff is all over the place. And um, the interesting thing now is, I argue that Central Texas barbecue is the default barbecue style now. Um, and so most of the places that are opening up now, all over the country, are mimicking that kind of Central Texas meat market vibe. Uh, you know, steel, they're, they're serving on tin trays, they're butcher paper. The menu is heavily um, Central Texas. So um, I'm not surprised by that phenomenon. And to me, you know, there's a big, diverse world of barbecue. I mean, can't y'all serve stuff from other places? <laughs> <laughs> well, I also wanted, wanted to tell you um, there's, there's an exhibit that the Atlanta History Center was – they. I, I think it's still up and it's on barbecue. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jim Akamudi, um, who wrote a great book on barbecue called smoke color, uh, was heavily involved in that. I, I was bummed that I never got to see that exhibit. I think it's down. I, I don't know if it's any up any longer. Um, well, and you know, it's something, it's something that they started doing about 15 years ago. Okay. And they, they actually brought me down. I live in Ohio now. And, and so they brought me down from Ohio because they said they needed an outsider because nobody there could agree on a definition for barbecue. And, <laughs> and there, there was so much arguing, you know, that, that they couldn't come to any decisions about anything, you know, about what to portray. So, and, then, and then at one point I said, you know, you know, I came all the way down here from Ohio, you know, this was in Atlanta, I said, I'd really like to go out for barbecue. They all looked at each other and said, "We can't even agree on where to go for barbecue." <laughs> that is hilarious. That that is so barbecue, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when something means a lot to people, yeah, argue about it. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid that exhibit in Atlanta has come down. Oh, it has. Okay. Yeah, and I, and I might say that Chicago too. Anytime you go into a bar and try to define barbecue, gunplay will ensue. <laughs> oh but thanks for thanks for telling me about the appalachian barbecue i will look into that um and I'll, I'll go back through my cookbooks um and see if i see any hints of it 
from back okay. in. Okay, I have, I've, uh, I've tons of photos if you need anything. <laughs> oh yeah, well, Lucy's very authoritative and it has a lot of information. Cool, I will definitely reconnect with you. Okay. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, so somebody here said, I'm Cuban. We do barbecue, but we use other ingredients in our rubs, a mixture of garlic, onion, seasonings. We do use the trench methods and above ground methods. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, I, I just don't know much about Cuban barbecue. The only thing I know about, and I'm, I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's a wooden box. That's, oh, um, uh, Caja China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that associated yeah. with Cuba? Am I wrong? I I think so. Yes. Okay. The inventor is from Cuba, but I'm not sure that it is a style that is widespread throughout Cuba. But it does raise an interesting question, and that is a lot of people speak of barbecue as a American cooking style, but realistically, we go back. I mean, cooking over flame or smoke goes back to prehistory and. Um, uh, the, yeah, I've read your, a good part of your book and you talk about the ox cooking. Um, there's tapestries I've seen in Switzerland going back to the 1400s of a whole ox roast. It's mm -hmm. not unique to North America. A barbecue is not. Yeah. So, you know, uh, thanks meathead. So, you know, I grapple with that because yeah, meat cooking goes, you know, that's, that's, um, some argue that's what made us human. Right. Um, and, and was a key part in our evolution. But um, I'm going to quibble with you about barbecue not being unique because it, it was Europeans after all who talked about this type of cooking and, and talked about it in a way that it seemed like it was something they weren't familiar with. And they did, a, they spent a lot of time talking about it, drawing it. Um, and so there's a lot of ink spilled about this thing. So if it was, you know, if it was something that was the same old, same old, um, I think they would have said, oh, well, these people are doing what we do back home. And I, I just never, you know, it may exist, but I never saw that. So to me, the fact that Europeans spoke of it as something different um, gives me an idea that it might be exceptional. And, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of programs and seen a lot of writing. And I, I think there's an effort to say, oh, barbecue is just the same as every place else. But um and I can see that because it's the commonalities of cooking meat over fire or whatever, but I, I just steeped in the history. And if you just look at the way people write about it, they're writing about this as if it's something new. Um, uh, there was an inquiry. Did you look at non-commercial barbecuing? Um, yeah, I did. But the problem is um, it's hard to, to write that story because just it's so ephemeral. You know, um, and so you got to catch the folks. They got to be cooking, you know, and they got to be willing to give up the secrets a little bit or talk about their experience. And, you know, it's a mixed bag. Um, and so, you know, I, I did try to talk about that somewhat, but most of what I talk about is commercial because that's uh, where you get a lot of documentation. Um, you know, the home cooks are just harder to pin down. Um, I, I don't know if this is a question for you or maybe people in the audience, but somebody wanted to know where to get good brisket in Chicago. That's not a question for me. Uh, I would go to, well, I know Smoke is one place that's uh, on the north side, S-M-O-Q-U-E, uh, Steamboat Barbecue, but I'm sure there's other places. Maybe people could put that into the chat. Smoke um, has got to be the best in town. It's the best outside of Texas and better than most places in Texas. 
Well, he's got it from Meathead. <laughs> are the, so are the Luke, guys from Texas, the owners of no, that? No, he's actually Jewish. And uh. he learned how to do his barbecue on an electric smoker in his backyard. Yeah, but he's, he's, but he's gone a very way nice guy. That. Very nice guy. Very way nice guy. That, yeah. yeah, I know. I mean, but that's where he, the, his initials, I have talked to him enough. Um, I mean, you know what I mean? We've, we're all the same, you know, circle. Um, in Peru, they have a tradition of cooking chicken underground in a dirt pit. Yeah. So when I was talking earlier about earth ovens, I, I mentioned that you see that in cultures around the world. And, um, you know, the, I, I, you see it throughout what we now call South America and Latin America and even South Texas. If, you, if you're familiar with the cabrito and the cabeza uh, kind of cooking techniques, I mean, those I would argue that those are earth ovens. Um, and so, you know, the, I, I can see an antecedent to southern barbecue there. But to me, it's, it's different to have this horizontal trench where you're cooking whatever, not in the ground, but above it. Um, and so to me, that's an innovation that's, or a riff or something different. So, um, but yeah, yeah, no, that type of cooking you see all throughout the Americas. Um, and even, even in where I live in the Midwest, pre-European, or at the time that people were moving out West and encountering the indigenous people on the plains, you know, um, there was something that some of them called meat holes where they would cook bison that way. And so you, that type of cooking is all over the place. Now, somebody went beyond the Americas and said, what about Australia and New Zealand with hangies and Barbies? And I hope, or is it hangies? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't pronounce it right if I did. Well, I, I don't. Do I you think, know anything about it? I don't know. I know Barbie, you know, from commercials. Well, I know Barbie from that Paul Hogan guy, Crocodile. <laughs> uh, well, exactly. I just don't, I don't know the history, but my sense is that Barbies is a more recent thing, maybe like a 20th century thing, but I don't know. What about barbecue pizza? What about it? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I've never <laughs> had it. That Don't they have that in, uh, isn't that in Memphis as well? I think because there's a place called Colette's that Elvis loved where they have barbecue pizza. But I, I've never had that. I mean, I, I've had that, you know, the barbecue chicken pizza, but, you know, I, I don't know if that counts. I've had that. You know, it's all right. But it's not something I crave. Okay. Now, the gentleman who was talking about Cuba said there were Chinese in Cuba. You can see Cuban barbecue on YouTube, primarily with pork, usually piglets called lechon asado. 90 Miles on Armitage was doing it a few years ago. Yeah. That is more of a statement. Um, lechon, yeah, I would like to know more about lechon asado in, in, in this sense. I would love to know how it was traditionally prepared. Um, oh, by the way, so Cynthia Clar uh, Clampett clarified because she she did a, she's written about Australia quite a bit. She says a Barbie is just a grill in the backyard. Okay. So not not barbecue. Okay. And that just the way it's described, that's how I would think it. That's what I would think it was, but or, or is, but um, I didn't know. I think a lot of Australian outdoor cooking is done on a griddle, on a flat top. Uh, oh wow. So not. Oh wow. Okay. Huh, interesting. Um, by the way, so I I, I will confess. Uh, so about 30 some years ago, I bought a smoker uh web, you know, was it uh smoky mountain that basically sat like a uh an expensive doorstop until about 15 years ago when in my group of friends it was starting there was one guy who was very good with playing around with his Weber Smoky Mountain. 
and gave one as a gift to his nephew, who then said, well, how do I use it now? So he wrote this little, it wrote a book actually called Low and Slow, and it's a five-step process. And I have to say, he, I've learned a lot about barbecue from him. He happens to be white. He happens to be Jewish and from Milwaukee. There's your combo right there. Yeah. But he's an advocate for not putting sauce on the meat, at least in the initial order, so that you can at least appreciate the work of that smoked barbecue. Catherine, I believe you cooked some barbecue on that. Oh, I have. I have. I mean, 15, I, in the last 15 years, I have. But no, I mean, for, for, for the, one of these, for the culinary historians. Oh, I have. For one of oh, the yeah. events. And I recall thinking, that's pretty darn good barbecue. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, you know, Gary Wiviet was the guy who taught me. You know him. But And I've, and I've smoked pastrami because we had a program one time on Jewish deli. I couldn't afford. I mean, I could, but it would be really extremely expensive. I went and cured the meat and smoked the meat and, you know, did it myself. But that's not the point. I'm just trying to defend the why I would not put sauce on the meat. It's just to at least appreciate that skill that went into smoking it. And then I put the sauce on. Now, my mother drives me nuts because I've sat there and I smoke something. She puts a big blob of sauce. She hasn't tasted anything. And she's not going to taste very much, you know. So, you know, I and in effect, uh, so she's nearby, so she just heard me. <laughs> Sorry. You're uh, but I'm just trying to point out that it's it's an appreciation that we might not put the sauce on the meat, at least in the first initial phase, rather than a dismissiveness. But I am surprised when a really good barbecue place emphasizes the sauce. And I guess it's because I think it's the, the, the it's it's the way people are programmed to look at it. But I look at it as the sauce. The, the sauce is boss. That's the phrase that's always used. Yeah. So yeah. No. So you know, I I have no problem with people that don't sauce their barbecue. I what bothers me is people going around saying that only legitimate barbecue is unsauced. That's what gives gives me an attitude. So uh, yeah, if you, you do, if you don't want to sauce your barbecue, that's fine. Do your thing, um, but you know, don't go around claiming to be an expert and say, yeah, if anybody sauces their barbecue, they're not doing it right. I don't claim to be an expert, but I have said since I've learned what good barbecue is, it's hard to tolerate bad barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, and, and, and it's yeah. and it's everywhere. <laughs> you mentioned Archibalds, yeah, in Alabama, and I don't think they have sauce on their on their meats down there and they were some of the best barbecue i had in the south yeah archibald's is really good yeah what a dump <laughs> yeah i yeah i don't even remember going into a place i just remember eating outside of it they had like a little they had some picnic tables set up somebody uh i put on mute for a moment somebody said they would love to hear a bit about your professional life in politics and public policy and the pivot to food. Oh. And in a similar boat as a professor turned pit master. In fact, I met you the first time was at Southern Foodways Conference and you were still working for the White House. Uh, no, by the time I got to that, I had just finished that job. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, people ask me, you know, how did I go from politics to food writing? And the short answer is unemployment. But if you want the longer answer, uh, so yeah, I was practicing law in Denver and um, hated it. And this is not disparage anybody who's an attorney or if you have attorneys in your family. 
but I got to the point where I was singing spirituals in my office. So I thought, you know, I should do something else. So I was going to actually open up a soul food restaurant in Denver, but then I got a call from a law school friend who was working in the Clinton White House. And so I worked on something called the Initiative for One America, and um, it was a racial reconciliation effort. And the wild and crazy idea behind the initiative was that if we just talked to one another and listened, we might realize that we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. So, um, you know, that was a great time. I really enjoyed my time in the White House. And so uh, at that time in my life, my ambition was to be the senator from Colorado at some point. So I was trying to get back to Colorado to start my political career once the Clinton administration ended. And it was just the job market was really tough. So it was hard to, um, you know, get a job. So I was in D.C. much longer than I thought. I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. And in the depth of my depravity, I thought, well, I should go to a bookstore and and get something to read. So I went to the bookstore um, and I got I found John Edgerton's Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. And I read it and I was just like, wow, this is interesting. And um, early in that book, he wrote that the tribute to black achievement in American cookery has yet to be written. So I thought that was really interesting. So I emailed Mr. Edgerton out of the blue and I said, hey, you wrote this because the book was about 14 years old when I got it. I said, hey, you wrote this a while ago. Um, you know, do you think this is still true? And he said, yeah, for the most part, nobody's taken on that story and there's always room for another voice. So why not yours? So that one sentence really launched my journey. But, you know, I never thought I was going to be a food writer. Um, so I still was thinking about politics. So I did make it back to Denver. I worked at a think tank for six years. And then um, a Democrat became governor in Colorado, first time in a long time. And so um, I worked, went to work on his staff. And then he decided not to run for reelection unexpectedly. So at that moment, I had been working on this soul food book for years. And I thought, you know what? I know me. I'll just research and research and research. And then 10 years later, I'll still be telling people I'm working on a soul food history. So I said, I'm going to go in. And so I just um, cashed in my retirement from public, the public sector, which is not something I recommend for everybody. Um, and just started writing that book on soul food. So that's, that's what, that's the journey. Well, we're thrilled. Yeah. Uh, by the way, they said in Puerto Rico, they're trying to make the lechon asado into UNESCO intangible cultural heritage item. Oh, that's cool. I think that's very cool, which means we could do that here in the United States. We would just have to have, I think, different regions and not even try to play uh, who's better or who's the, otherwise you're in trouble, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, and by the way, somebody said your your soul food is remarkably good. Oh, they well, whoever it. said that, thank you so much. Well, I'll have to uh, make my Chicago press agent next to Sharla. That's the way to do it. I think we're about done, but this was great. All right, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for your questions and for weighing in. It's so good to be with you again. Scott, do you want to say adieu? I don't know. Okay. Yes. I, yes. It's great. <laughs> Sorry, Adrian, Scott. Adrian, thank you so much. You're a three-peat, and, and please come back for your next project. I can't imagine you not having another work in progress. So come back again. We, we always love having you. <laughs>